Today, we're going to be talking about blockchain technology and the new proposed Australian government regulation into the big tech giants such as Google and Facebook. And today, we're talking with Chris Berg. Chris is a senior research fellow and co-director of the RMIT Blockchain Innovation Hub. He's written 10 books so quickly that by the time this podcast is over, he'll probably have written 11. His latest is a co-authored book, which is called The New Technologies of Freedom. Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. So before we get into the book, tell us a little bit about the RMIT Blockchain Innovation Hub and the work that you do there. Of course. So um, the RMIT Blockchain Innovation Hub is based, obviously, at RMIT University in Melbourne. We're the world's first social science research centre into blockchain technology. So what we're doing is looking at the um, economics, the law, the political science, the sociology of cryptocurrencies and blockchain technology to try to look at what the um, how this rather remarkable new tech will reshape the global economy, will reshape um, uh, society, will reshape, and, and this is my particular interest, will reshape the relationship between in, the individual and the state. Um, uh, I'm, I'm really optimistic about it. I think my research has suggested that um, there's a lot to look at it from a libertarian perspective and there's a lot to be excited by, more than just the, the um, sort of stuff that we've talked about in the libertarian community for a long time, which is um, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. I think there's a lot more to this tech than that. And, and, and I'd be pleased to share it with your listeners. Awesome. So tell us a little bit about why you wrote the new technologies of freedom and why you're actually a techno optimist. <laughs> of course. So um, uh, techno optimism used to be really common, um, particularly on the right side of politics. But I think we're going through a wave of techno pessimism. Um, in part, that's because uh, a lot of the technologies and firms that have used technologies and um, governments have managed to use technologies in a way that seems to be a threat to liberty. Um, uh, and I think there's just a natural backlash as social media networks become more central to our lives. Um, uh, people have started to identify um, the negative consequences or the negative ways that they've been used or, or monitored or surveilled or, or what have you. Um, this book is um, a pushback against that. Uh, we're not trying to rebut claims um, made by the techno-pessimists, but what we're trying to do is spell out that there are a new generation of technologies that promise to radically change the relationship between the individual and the state in a very firmly pro-liberty way. These are technologies that can be used to fight and defend against um, the hierarchical power of big government and big corporations as well. Um, that was the original dream of the cypherpunks who um, developed cryptocurrencies in the 1990s and even earlier. And I think they're coming into fruition now. It's time for us to start talking about that. But w when uh, people think Bitcoin, they think, you know, the Bitcoin bubble and oh, it's just a fad. It's not really going to be used as a currency. But how do you how do you see blockchain actually playing out in the future as an actual currency that people take up and adopt? Sure. So um, Bitcoin and, and almost all blockchain technology is very early stage technology. It's only been around for um, just over 10 years. Some of the technologies that we rely on when we think about the possibilities of blockchain are 
even earlier and younger again, invented in 2015, 2016. So it's an early stage technology. I don't think that you would expect with a technology this radical that suddenly we would all be adopting it in the space of a decade. Um, but the way we see it is, um, this is more than just about money. This is a, um, a digital infrastructure that is decentralized. Um, so it provides the um, rails on which you can build currencies Absolutely. But it also provides the infrastructure in which you can build alternative ways of um, uh, community building, alternative ways of organizing economic activity and exchange, alternative ways of enforcing contracts, alternative ways of doing all the things that we often rely on the state to provide for us, to provide identity technologies, to provide um, uh, uh, security and protection of our exchanges and so forth. So this is just a, it is a radical suite of really exciting possibilities for technology um, that, that, that that's what, what thrills us. So I think we've gotten a little bit ahead of ourselves because I'm taking it for granted that people actually understand what the blockchain is. Uh, I think it was originally called the time chain, if I'm it's, not mis mistaken. So could you just explain what blockchain technology actually is? What's the basis of it? Of course. Um, so blockchain is a database. It's a ledger. It's a um, list of entries that's held on computers around the world. Um, what's exciting about blockchain is that um, the innovation created by Satoshi Nakamoto when he was, or he or she, was designing the Bitcoin blockchain was that he or she managed to figure out a way that we could agree on how to update that database without the need for a central authority. Um, so it's a ledger. Ledger is a fairly dull accounting technology, but it has rather radical implications if you don't need a central one particular person or one particular organization or one particular government to update the ledger. We can do so in a distributed fashion. Now, why is that important? Um, because it turns out that centrally organized ledgers are one of the foundational technologies of the society we have today. They are one of the key reasons that we have central firms. They are one of the key reasons that we have centralized governments. Now, if we can decentralize what previously centralized institutions did for us, we can radically decentralize the economy and society and do so in a way that is highly um, friendly to individual rights and individual control and individual sovereignty of ourselves, of information, of um, uh, economic exchange. That's the fundamental thing. Now, the first the first application, the first use case of this technology was Bitcoin. It was cryptocurrencies. But as I said, it, it has um, applications in a whole range of use cases from, from new types of corporations to new ways to manage supply chains to new ways to manage personal identities and so forth. Awesome. And before we get into kind of the smart contract uh, thing, which I found really, really fascinating, uh, most libertarians really like commodities. They like gold, oil, and ammunition and things like that. So... Uh, <laughs> They'd probably consider that before considering a digital wallet. So how, what's the idea behind a digital currency in a libertarian utopia? How do we justify that? Well, what is money? So um, you're right. There are some uh, libertarians who believe that money has to reflect an underlying um, scarce commodity like gold. 
or, or, or historically silver or something like that. Um, I think that's a wrong understanding of what money is. Money is a social agreement. It's something that we coordinate around. We agree to, um, uh, to, to use a particular good or a particular digital entry as a way to make exchanges because we agree that it is um, likely to be valuable to us after we receive it from the other person. It's a social institutional technology. Now, um, historically, gold is, has done that really, really well. Um, but we don't need to have a social institution to be backed by something physical. We just need to agree that something, for example, is scarce and is valuable, is likely to, um, uh, to achieve the goals that you want from a money. Um, and that's what a cryptocurrency like Bitcoin can do without the waste of having to have gold. If we agree as a society, as a group of people, as just a small community, that something is money, has the properties of money, is scarce so that it can't be endlessly inflated, then it can function as money. I think it's important for us as libertarians to understand not just um, uh, not just why, uh, not just that gold is a good basis for, for money, but why it might be. And I think if we understood that, we would understand and similarly why something like Bitcoin could be as well. So could you explain to us exactly what a, what a smart contract is and how they could, um, how they could move us away from, uh, well, one, the centralized state, but also their, uh, their expensive legal systems? Of course. Um, so a smart contract is um, an algorithm. Um, what's exciting about a smart contract is so, so it's, you know, it's actually not, it's very poorly named. The smart contract is actually a pretty dumb contract when you think of the way other contracts exist in the world. Um, but a smart contract is an algorithm, an algorithm that is um, self-executing. So a smart contract on a smart contract platform like the Ethereum blockchain will is a agreement. Say you give me X dollars and I will give you Y in, um, uh, in exchange, it will execute automatically according to the terms of that contract everywhere in the world or everywhere that the Ethereum blockchain exists with no possibility of censorship. So to the extent that you and I, when we're making an exchange, making a trade, can um, describe that trade fully in, um, in a smart contract, then we don't need any terrestrial national legal system to enforce it for us because it will self-enforce. Now, this is incredibly powerful when you're entirely in the digital space. Um, you're entirely potentially in the intellectual property space where everything can be described in um, ones and zeros. Uh, it creates some challenges if you want to have it, um, uh, you want to include in your smart contract physical things of the real world because how do you ensure that a smart contract is going to enforce that and there's a lot of innovation in this space there's a lot of really exciting um uh, experimentation and there's a lot of uh, we've advanced a lot in the in recent years um but it is a really powerful way to have a sort of self-sovereign economic system one that doesn't rely on national courts and lawyers and judges um uh, because it's all just self-enforcing. gives us a lot of possibilities. Um, it's one of these basic primitives 
of um, an economy that you would need to have a self-sovereign and more free economy. And I really like the example in the book that, you know, a vending machine is an example of a very primitive smart contract. You know, you stipulate the terms and then you put the money in and then you get the product out without any sort of arbitration yeah. or... Because when you think about it, a vending machine, it's, it's sort of algorithmic in nature. You know, you put in X amount of coins and you receive Y in product. Um, it's a very basic, quote, smart contract. Um, uh, but... But as I say, it's, it's, it's dumb in a lot of ways. It just does what it says, <laughs> which, is, which, which, which incidentally is one of the big problems in the space, which is that if you um, write your smart contracts poorly, you can lose a lot of money. Um, and if you write a smart contract that has a bug, then um, that can be potentially catastrophic because it will do what it says it will do. Um, it's not going to, it doesn't care about your intent. It doesn't care um, if you regret it. It just will do what you wrote. So there's probably potential for a lot of uh, new employment in smart contract creation, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So you also talk about free speech in the book as well. Uh, I'm wondering how you keep your optimism in the age of cancel culture and shadow banning and all the crazy thing that's, the crazy stuff that's going on at the moment. How do you keep your optimism? Uh, look, I'm, I'm incredibly optimistic and I'm, I'm, uh, I, I'm, I'm concerned about um, some cultural shifts, uh, but the ability for us to share knowledge, to share ideas has just never been greater. I think it's hard for us in 2020 to realise how different our intellectual environment is than it was even 10 or 20 years ago. Um, I, I do try to point out to some people, because I, I, I grew up, when I was young, I didn't have the internet. Now, of course, that's a, that's a radical thing these days, but I didn't have the internet. And I remember um, the discovery of bulletin board system, BBSs, was just extraordinary, and using an old 56K modem to get to them. That was an exposure to an entirely new world that felt remarkably free because you could download um, uh, just documents that would be completely inaccessible to you, just as I was sitting in a, in a home in suburban Melbourne. Um, that I, you couldn't get at the library, you couldn't, you couldn't get at school, you couldn't get really anywhere else. You would maybe had to mail up or something. Um, we live in an environment now where you can get and communicate with anyone about anything at any time. Now, there are sometimes legal consequences to this. There are sometimes social consequences to this. Um, and I don't, I, I've spent my career arguing about restrictions on freedom of speech and fighting things like Section 18C of the Racial Discrimination Act. So I, I, I don't deny that that is a, a real challenge and something that we should put effort into. But at the same time, we should not forget or ignore the radical openness of our speech environment now. Now, in the book, which um, I should point out is a, um, a joint project between myself, Darcy Allen, Sinclair Davidson, and the Mankell Economic Education Foundation that was very kind to sponsor the book. But in the, in the book, we go into uh, this argument somewhat and try to look at the alternative technologies that you can use if you are concerned 
that um, large corporations or large social media networks are demonetizing you or are um, kicking you off their platform or so forth. Um, and the enormous array of alternative possibilities you have to those major social media platforms tells me that our freedom of speech problem we might have a cultural problem where cancel culture is very real. I think cancel culture is a, something that we should be very concerned about, but freedom of speech problem in that do we have the capacity to share ideas? Well, we've never had more free speech than we, than we do today. Yeah. And uh, when you're talking about your first experience with the internet, I couldn't help having a flashback to playing Duke Nukem 3d online <laughs> for the first time. Of course. Um, yeah. Those were the good old days. Um, so before we move on, what is the most promising new digital currency that you see uh, coming up in the world? What should we be looking out for? <laughs> Where um, do we invest our money? I, well, I, I definitely can't provide any advice on that. I'm very excited about um, some of the next generation smart contract platforms. Um, uh, I'm working with a San Francisco um, firm who's building on the Cosmos blockchain, which is very exciting. Um, very rich blockchain ecosystem. Um, but I, I'm not interested in this space because it's, because it's a great investment opportunity. I've never recommended to anybody that they put any more money in um, cryptocurrency or the blockchain community than they are willing to completely lose. Um, in part, that's because, you know, you should be an informed investor, but also because these are experiments. And um, in, in fact, in just recent days, we've seen how some of these experiments can go horribly wrong just because they've been poorly coded. Um, uh, so I, I don't view it as an as a investment opportunity. I have very little money personally in cryptocurrency. And what I have in there is just so that I can try out applications to learn about it. What I do recommend is that people learn about it. Um, so buy, you should buy a little bit of Bitcoin. You should buy a little bit of Ethereum, not because you are pretty sure you're onto a good thing, but just so that you can discover this remarkable new environments, get familiar with the concepts, get familiar with the possibilities. And while they're at it, they can go buy the new technologies on freedom on Amazon for like $6 on Kindle or something ridiculously cheap. That, that's right. So it's been published by the American Institute for Economic Research. Um, uh, and, and they are dedicated to making sure that these ideas get out as far and widely as possible. So um, uh, we're very pleased that they've um, offered it up on Kindle for such a, a low price if anyone's been on google or youtube in the last 48 hours they may have noticed a little pop-up saying the way uh, aussie search every day on google is at risk from new government regulation so i thought who better to get on the show than you to talk about this so what is going on here what is the news bargaining code what's going on of course so i think this is just absolutely outrageous um, this is a policy of the Australian government to, how is the simplest way to describe it? It is to take money, steal money from Google specifically and Facebook. Uh, sorry, Google and Facebook specifically, they haven't named other companies that would be subject to this code. Just take their money and give them to other companies, in particular um, uh, News Limited and, and Nine Newspapers. Uh, the origins of this goes back a very long way um, uh, and all the way back to the loss of advertising that um, brought the traditional newspaper markets to their death now. 
Um, and there's a lot of water under the bridge. There's a lot of disputes about it. But the ultimate and fundamental thing that's going to happen here is that on the basis of very questionable claims from particularly news limited um, newspapers, the, they have convinced the government to just take money from Google and Facebook and give it to News Limited and um, nine newspapers. I think it is absolutely outrageous. Now I can go into some of the history and I can go into some of the detail, but there is just no good argument in favor of this policy. It is just unambiguous rent seeking on behalf of one company against another company. So, but they'll say, oh, it's in the public interest. We need news, you know, <laughs> so what, well, what? We do have a, we do have a $1 billion um, public interest news organization in the ABC. So, um, uh, which of course I would like to privatize in extensively about. Um, uh, so, so they do, they do say that. Um, what's happened, a very potted summary of what happened is that the um, newspapers were reliant on the rivers of gold from classified advertising and that shifted over to the internet. Now, um, it shifted over to the internet, but those classified ads that kept up the newspaper, the traditional broadsheet and tabloid newspapers for the 20th century did not go to Google or Facebook. It went to things like um, domain.com.au. It went to carsales.com.au. Many of these firms were, uh, many of these sites were actually owned by the newspapers themselves because the newspapers weren't stupid. Um, uh, but nonetheless, um, uh, we're now in an environment where a lot of the newspaper corporations see that Google and Facebook are predominantly funded by advertising they also see that the, the advertising dollars that sustain them have disappeared. And they believe that those two are connected, that the money that they used to get for advertisers is now gone to um, uh, the new social media and, and search giants. Now it's not true empirically because there are actually two different advertising markets and we can go into that, but it's, it's a bit boring and technical. They're just, they're, they're not different. What the newspapers would like is some of the revenue of that advertising to be sent back to the newspapers so that they can use it to pay for their journalism. Now, I, I get that, and it must be very distressing to be in a business whose business model has been completely um, destroyed uh, by, by technological change, but they don't have a right to that money. They, there's no natural right to advertising funds to a pool of advertising. Um, the newspapers will make some wild claims about um, the idea that Google and Facebook are somehow stealing their content or using their content without permission. I know for a fact that um, Google will just shut down Google News in Australia and Facebook will just prevent people from sharing um, uh, stories from the Australian or the age or, or the AFR, if, if this policy goes through, um, that's what they've done in other markets where um, similar policies have been um, uh, proposed. Uh, it is, it, it, but, but just digging through it, it's sort of, I, I don't know why there's, I mean, I know why there's not more of an uproar because it's the newspapers who normally get in uproars about things, but it is just outright theft. Um, uh, from from the government in, in in the interest of one company against another, I I I, I find it astounding. I'm sort of 
I'm, I'm still shocked by it. <laughs> so what would this actually mean if it becomes uh, legislation? What would this mean for the small guy, the independent journalist or small content creators? Would this uh, give them an unfair disadvantage or... Well, it depends how they do it. Um, uh, what it, the idea is that it's meant to be a news media code. It's been des- uh, the the lobbying is so that it goes to the big big companies. But what might happen, and um, we've seen some suggestions from Google and Facebook that they might put money completely separate to the um, government requirement. They might put money aside for independent news media operators, um, basically as donations, um, uh, which, you know, I don't have a, uh, have, a, have a problem with. I think that's probably um, a good thing, or at least, you know, I, I think news organisations are important. I think journalism is an important function in democracy. So, so that's, that's, that's probably positive. Um, it won't get what the large companies want, which is, of course, just reams and reams of cash to finance um, existing operations. Um, so, so that well might happen. Um, I, as I said, I think the likely thing is that this policy goes ahead and, the, um, and Google just shuts down Google News, um, in Australia at least. Uh, which is not exactly a revenue raiser for Google by any means, is of use to people like me because I like to search for um, uh, for 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 stories, um, but it's not a big part of their business. And the same with Facebook. So Facebook um, uh, allows you to post whatever you want on your Facebook feed, as we know, or within reason. Um, uh, but it turns out that news stories from newspaper so so incredibly small um uh part of of what what people actually share so they'll just prevent them from being shared um which is in no one's interest um uh it's 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 not in the interest of users it's not at all in the interest of the newspapers because it turns out that while it's trivial for facebook it's really important for newspapers that people are sharing newspaper links on Facebook because we need, uh, because they want people to travel to their website so that they get advertising clicks. Um, anyway, it's just a catastrophic schmozzle. I have spent the last year or two trying to get to the bottom of what everybody is, thinks they are doing in this space. And, and really I have landed on nothing more than this is just outright rent seeking and theft. Uh- the ACCC came out and said this is to increase competition. In what world does this increase competition? <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, like uh, <laughs> no, it's 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 madness. The ACCC is being used by the um, uh, well, the ACCC is both using and being used by the Commonwealth government um, to uh, pursue this. The ACCC has a um, very strong agenda. It believes that the social networks and um, search giants are monopolistic in some ways. I've got a lot of criticisms of the way they come up to that conclusion, um, but they see this as one of the ways um, uh, to, to push back against that, given that many of the tools that the ACCC usually has don't apply in the digital space, or at least are hard to apply in the digital space. They've got bugbears about privacy. Now, it, it's not the role of our competition regulator to decide where journalism comes from. That's not its job but they seem to have taken it on themselves to do so. Um, again, massive schmozzle, massive schmozzle. Yeah, I don't know how anyone could say it's in the public interest to have corporate-sponsored media 
backed by government regulation, having an unfair advantage over news outlets because they uh, turn over less than $150,000. I don't know how. It's also just fundamentally wrong for the government to be taking money from one company and giving it to another company and, and nominating the specific companies, right? The government, that's not what government is for. It is not to, to redistribute money around corporate Australia. Now, I get that that happens a lot. <laughs> and I get that rent-seeking is endemic. But rarely have I seen it so just um, open, <laughs> so opaque or transparent, I should say. It's so funny because I, when I'm scrolling through Facebook, I'll open an article from Mises.org multiple times a day hmm. like, and have them open, go on to their actual website and see all their advertising and all the rest of it. So it occurs to me that they just need to be better, right? These news organizations just need to be better and have better content if they're actually losing advertising revenue. I don't, I don't understand why they're getting the government involved, but yeah. I guess... Yeah, well, look, let me, let me make a broader point, which sort of goes to the new technologies of freedom point. We have um, experienced over the last decade such dramatic technological change with so many complex economic and social implications that um, I don't know that we as a movement, the liberty movement, are very well tooled up to reckon with those changes Suddenly, we're talking about um, not just the, this, this news media bargaining code, but we're talking about what is the impact of Facebook on democratic elections? What is the impact of um, uh, Twitter or YouTube on um, the sharing of information? These are just radically different questions than we were asking 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago when... Um, so many of our ideas were being forged, where so many of our um, political positions were being made concrete. Um, so I think it's incumbent upon us in the liberty movement to really get literate about these questions, to tackle directly the um, policies of the other side, um, to, to be capable of operating in this new space. And I worry that many of our opponents are more capable of operating in this space than we are right now. Um, I wanna make sure that, that we in the Liberty Movement, um, uh, some of our allies and friends in, um, in national politics and state politics aren't as well tooled up as some of those on, on, on the left or in progressive movements or even in conservative movements are what would that look like though um uh, there's a new book called the new technologies of freedom which uh is <laughs> very good coming very out good. um uh, no i think i think it, i think it will involve um a lot more engagement with um two community between two communities that are not well integrated what the tech community and the libertarian community are surprisingly separated, even though many in the tech community share the libertarian ideals and um, even vision of themselves. Um, I spent a lot of time in um, San Francisco and in Silicon Valley talking with and working with tech companies. And one of the things that we're trying to do is 
bring some of the libertarians in those communities in amongst the libertarians in in the traditional communities that i'm from if we we're in the united states we talk about this as a west coast versus east coast thing and i've spent most of my career on the east coast community and and are trying to work now on the west coast um i think we've got to we've got to bring those two two groups together because it's and this is this is one of the points of the book I'm, I'm sick and tired of the Liberty movement, just spending its hard energy uh, begging the state for its liberties back. I think we've got a suite of technologies that allow us to take them back, that allow us to secede in small and big ways, that allow us to forge the liberal free society that we want, not just regret its disappearance at the behest of Canberra or DC. Or, or Westminster. Perfect. So an exodus to a digital world. Yeah, um, yeah, and and it's it's more possible now. I mean, we've all done it, right? Uh, you and I. I mean, uh, I'm, me more so because I'm in Melbourne, but we're all in lockdown, and we all see the world solely through a digital lens now. Um, that's where we work. That's where we relax with our friends. This is this is what we do now. COVID brought that on. But COVID is only ever an excel uh, is is only an accelerator of existing trends as we as we've learned. Um, we experience the world through a digital prism. It's time for us to fight for our liberties in that digital prism as much as the the real world. Perfect. And just before we go, how are you handling lockdown? Is there any hope around the corner in Melbourne <laughs> or, uh, under Daniel Andrews? Well, yeah, look, I was reflecting, um, look, I've got lots of views, of course, about the lockdown, but at a personal level, we were reflecting about this um, with some colleagues this morning. Once stage four is over, then we'll be just back to stage three, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so I don't think my, my young children who are in primary school are going back to school anytime soon, <laughs> which creates wow. all sorts of all sorts of um uh interesting challenges to 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 have a job and to um uh, distance education your children um look a lot of this is i could i could talk about covid for a long time as you can imagine um i have some sympathy for um how governments acted and felt in february and march when things were much more unpredictable we knew less about the virus um, we knew less about the um, way it spread, its health consequences. I have less and less sympathy now because we've learned a lot in the last six months about both the health consequences of the virus, but also about what works and what doesn't work. Um, and we're now starting to have a conversation in Melbourne, at least, about, well, you know, once, once this six-week period of stage four ends, we're not going to be at zero transmission. In fact, it's very unlikely that anybody can ever be at zero transmission. Um, we're going to have to live with this until a vaccine. What does a living with this policy look like rather than a trying to eliminate this, um, the virus at every, every moment? Because it just can't continue like this. Now, I, I can couch this in, in more aggressive ways um, and I can phrase it in, in the context of um, individual rights and liberty, which are just being violated by the day. But I think even the fairest minded observer, even the most centrist observer has to now be thinking, well, you know, what, what, what is the next step? What is the living with it policy? What does that look like? Perfect. Chris, thanks so much for being on the show. If anyone wants to learn more about you, where can they go? 
Um, well, you can um, Google my name. <laughs> you can go to um, uh, chrisberg.org or you can find me on Twitter at, um, at chrisberg. Um, uh, I'm, I'm easy to Google. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you so much for being on the show. My pleasure. Anytime.